Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Good morning and a very warm welcome to Africa Rise and Shine. This is Channel Africa from an African perspective and we're coming to you live in Johannesburg, South Africa. We are on the frequencies 7230 kHz on the 41 meter band to Southern Africa and on 11925 kHz on the 19 meter band to West Africa as well as DSTV's audio bouquet Channel 802. I'm Lulu Gabu in studio with Anne Musa, Tabisolo Hogo and Figlele Mwati. In our top stories on Africa Rise and Shine at the Sawa, South Sudan warring parties urge to silence their guns, and UN finalizes preparations for Nelson Mandela Peace Summit. In economics news, Kenya's finance minister cuts government spending budget, and in sports news, Kosafa Women's Championship semi-finals kick off this afternoon. But first up, the news with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Moussa. Former Congolese Vice President Jean-Pierre Bemba's lawyers say he will appeal his sentence for bribing war crimes witnesses. The International Criminal Court on Monday confirmed a one-year sentence and 350,000 US dollar fine against Bemba for tampering with witnesses in his main trial for war crimes and crimes against humanity. Any fresh appeal will however come too late to get Bemba on the official list of candidates for the Democratic Republic of Congo's December 23rd election, from which he has been barred by the bribery conviction. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed has called on political parties in the Oromia region to refrain from trading in the name of the Oromo people and the region's struggle. State-affiliated Fana Broadcasting Corporation reports that Abiy, who is an ethnic Oromo, was speaking at the Delegates Conference of the Oromo People Development Organization Party, which he heads and represents in the ruling coalition. According to Amnesty International, recent events in the capital Addis Ababa and the Burayo town in the Oromia region that left at least 58 people dead had ethnic undertones. Abiye has urged Ethiopians to unite and work together to defeat those who want to undermine national and Oromo unity. A challenge by South Africa's opposition EFF to the use of the apartheid-era riotous Assembly Act to charge its leader, Julius Malema, will be heard in the High Court in the capital, Pretoria. Malema was charged after calling for a land grab. Amos Pajo reports. EFF believes the Riotous Assembly Act is an apartheid piece of legislation which was enacted to fight the Freedom Charter. It says the act was the basis of the famous Rivonia treason trial. The EFF accuses the ANC government of having used that legislation to charge its leader Julius Malema for calling for the occupation of vacant land by the landless people. Malema currently faces charges in Bloemfontein and Newcastle. Liberia's government has released a list of people barred from leaving the country, including the son of former President Elian Johnson Salif. This is investigations into the whereabouts of 104 million U.S. dollars in missing cash intended for the central bank intensify. Charles Salif and former central bank governor Milton Weeks are among those barred from travel. A series of shipments of notes ordered by Liberia's central bank from printers overseas have disappeared since last year. 
year after passing through the country's main ports. And finally, European Union leaders are meeting in the Austrian city of Salzburg for an informal summit focusing on migration and Brexit. President of the European Council, Donald Tusk, has made a plea for leaders to stop the blame game on migration and focus on finding solutions. The British Prime Minister, Theresa May, is expected to defend her proposals for Brexit. Austrian Chancellor Sebastian Kurz says both sides need to be flexible to reach an agreement. I think that if we want to make a deal, uh, both sides need to compromise. Uh, I think that uh, Michel Barnier and we as the EU27, uh, we want to do everything possible to avoid a hard Brexit. We stand ready to compromise, but uh, we also expect that from the UK. And so uh, I hope that in, his speech, uh, in her speech today, uh, we will hear a step forward. And that's the New Zealand's at 8.30 Central African Time. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. It's 8.06 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg on this Thursday, September the 20th, the 263rd day of 2018 with 102 days left in the year. To our top story, senior UN officials have warned that there are legitimate questions and concerns about the commitment of the parties to peace agreements signed by the leaders of South Sudan less than a week ago. A previous deal signed in 2015 fell apart and fighting between government forces and rebels have killed at least 50,000 people and displaced 2 million. The UN's Undersecretary-General for Peacekeeping pointed out that within days of the latest signing in Ethiopia's capital, there have already been reports of fighting in several regions of the country. Show and Bryce Peace reports. Despite the handshake between President Salva Kiir and his opponent Riek Machar in Addis Ababa last week and the opportunity it presents, hostilities continue in several states in South Sudan. Listen to the Undersecretary-General for Peacekeeping, Jean-Pierre Lacroix. We must therefore send a strong message to the parties that with the conclusion of this revitalized political agreement, there is no justification for the continuation of violence, which continues to exact a heavy toll on the civilian population. We must once more call upon them to demonstrate leadership by taking the necessary steps to silence the guns, disengage forces, facilitate the free and unhindered movement of unmissed and humanitarian partners, and reverse the massive humanitarian and human toll of the conflict. While the energetic diplomacy of IGAD and other regional groups and countries, including Ethiopia, Uganda and Sudan, have been lauded in achieving the latest agreement, the parties still need to demonstrate political will to implement it. UN envoy for Sudan and South Sudan, South Africa's Nicholas Haysom. We have also alerted the parties to the need to address 
the enforceability of the agreement. We have already noted the numerous cessation of hostility agreements that have been violated within hours of the parties recommitting to peace. No agreement can last in the face of continuing violations for which there is no penalty or no consequence. This risks a response by South Sudanese as to what is different in this agreement from the previous failed agreements. With calls here for the parties to demonstrate their political intent by making their guns fall silent. One of the hurdles facing the implementation of the agreement is the very low levels of trust between the parties. The prevalent spirit of rivalry will be imported into the government by virtue of the fact that the parties and their leaders will likely be competing candidates at the elections, which is the culmination of the transition. This council should urge the parties to undertake confidence-building measures to build faith in the peace process and ameliorate the bitterness and hostility, which is the legacy of the past four years of horrible intercommunal violence. Such measures do not require financial resources. A broad reading of the room was that council members and UN officials feel a sense of being there, done that, given the number of peace and cessation of hostility agreements that have failed to quell the violent trajectory of the world's youngest nation. As Nicholas Hasem pointed out, the jury is still out on whether the issues that threaten a lasting and sustainable peace in South Sudan, among them security arrangements, cantonment of fighters and finances, among others, will be resolved through the parties and their leaders, showing and sharing a real commitment to this new peace process. I'm Sherman Bricepees in New York. The United Nations is in final preparation for the annual high-level segment of the General Assembly that will see the world's political elite descend on the city that never sleeps. South Africa's President Sil Ramaphosa will depart at the weekend to lead a powerful delegation of cabinet ministers as the country basks in the spotlight that comes with the day-long Nelson Mandela Peace Summit next Monday, in which over 140 delegations have requested to speak. The general debate begins on Thursday with royalty, presidents and prime ministers all expected under one roof. Sean Bryce Peace reports from New York. Diplomats quietly telling us that this is South Africa's General Assembly. The unveiling of a Mandela statue as a gift to the UN will serve as a precursor to the adoption of a political declaration in the former president's name, setting the stage for a week where the recently elected member of next year's Security Council will be in high demand. Listen to Ambassador Jerry Machila. The next uh, week is uh, action-packed. The whole world... 103 nations are joining us on Be the Legacy. So the UN system have embraced this Be the Legacy. So the president is arriving over the weekend, the minister tonight, and other delegations. So to pursue this Be the Legacy, the UN has agreed that we'll have a special day, 24th of September, dedicated to Nelson Mandela's values, positions around the peace summit. And then we have another leg around the business because the president wants to mobilize resources for investment. So we have a whole day for activities. 
The general debate starts on September 25th with United States President Donald Trump among the first to speak. While side events include a focus on eradicating tuberculosis, controlling non-communicable diseases, non-proliferation and financing for the 2030 agenda. Secretary General Antonio Guterres. At a time of fragmentation and polarization, the worlds need this assembly to show the value of international cooperation. The Secretariat and I are committed to supporting you and strengthening the ways in which we work together. And Madam President, I wish you and all Member States every success as we strive to achieve our shared goals. The 73rd session of the Assembly, which officially opened on Tuesday, sees a woman lead the body for the first time in 12 years and only the fourth time in history. Her name is Maria Fernanda Espinosa Garces from Ecuador. I am proud and happy to become the first woman in Latin America and the Caribbean to preside over the General Assembly. I, uh, in my work here, uh, we intend to strengthen multilateralism. There is only uh, the only, I would say, a way uh, to solve the global problems is through a collective, cooperative approach. That's what we need. Security is at a premium for this event, with UN, local, state and federal law enforcement officials tasked with keeping the VIPs and their battalions of aides safe, as the Secretary General spokesperson Stefan Dujeric explains. Right now, in advance of the plenary session, we have confirmations that 88 heads of states, 45 heads of government are to attend the session, which is up from 77 heads of state and 37 heads of government last year. Regarding other events, as of today, the Department for General Assembly and Conference Management has received 342 requests for meetings during the high-level week. Compared for the same time last year, it received 343. And as of today, our colleagues have received a total of 741 requests for bilateral meetings amongst member states, and this number will increase uh, during next week. One of the most important stakeholders in the success of this annual event are the people who will be housed in a massive tent on the north lawn of the UN precinct, the media. Up to 3,000 print, radio, TV, online, state, public and private media houses from around the world. Many who will likely view sleep as a luxury rather than a prerequisite in the days ahead. I'm Sherman Bryce-Pease in New York. Let's go back in time to today in 1958. Martin Luther King Jr. was seriously wounded during a book signing at a New York City department store when he was stabbed in the chest by Isola Curry. Curry was later found mentally incompetent. Today in history, 1958. Hello. I'm Dr. Amalia Gonyas Malka. Welcome to Womanity, Woman in Unity, the show that celebrates prominent and ordinary African women's milestone achievements in their struggles for liberation, self-emancipation, human rights, democracy, racism, socioeconomic class division, and gender-based violence. Joining us is Professor Nasima Karim from the University of Pretoria's Human Resource Management Department. Her research interests include diversity management, specifically topics related to culture, religion, gender and management, identity and intersectionality. Be sure to join Channel Africa at 10 o'clock Central African time on Thursday 
for this interesting episode of Womanity. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. It's 16 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. Health leaders in Botswana have called for urgent action in the fight against non-communicable diseases or NCDs in the African region. The call made at a landmark forum held in the capital Khaburoni comes as the world prepares for a high-level meeting on NCDs at the UN General Assembly in New York which is set to take place at the end of September. NCDs are a group of chronic health conditions that include cardiovascular diseases, cancers, mental disorders and diabetes. They are now the leading killers globally, accounting for 7 in 10 deaths. More from Dr. Stephen Shongwe, Director of Non-Communicable Diseases at the World Health Organization's Africa region. The aims of the meeting in Botswana were mainly to raise awareness of the growing burden of non-communicable diseases in Botswana and other African countries and to highlight the efforts that have been made to tackle non-communicable diseases and some of the efforts include imposing high tax on alcohol and tobacco products, strengthening multisectoral collaboration to improve road safety and scaling up cervical cancer, early screening, diagnosis and treatment through integrated care centers and mobile clinic services primarily provided by nurses and to encourage the participation of heads of state and government in the United Nations General Assembly high-level meeting on non-communicable diseases in New York on 27 September. Briefly give us an overall scenario, Doctor, of NCDs in the African region, as well as your future projections. How does the picture look like? Yes, we are seeing in the African region a growing burden of non-communicable diseases, mainly cardiovascular diseases, cancer, diabetes, and chronic respiratory diseases and mental health disorders. In the African region, main killers have been infectious diseases such as HIV, TB, malaria, and other infections. But we are making great strides in tackling these infectious diseases. But unfortunately, we are seeing an increasing trend of non-communicable diseases. Would you say that it has become critically important now than ever before for African countries to invest in NCDs prevention, control and management? Absolutely. It's very, very critical that we take action now to tackle non-communicable diseases because we have learned the lessons from HIV which devastated countries, communities and families. We are seeing growing exposure to the risk factors, hypertension or high blood pressure. We were seeing other risk factors such as uh, the rate of uh, smoking. We were seeing a high prevalence of exposure to cholesterol and other threats. So all these factors increase the risk of illness and death from one of these non-communicable diseases, in particular the cardiovascular diseases, the, you know, the heart disease and stroke.
You spoke about the importance of acting now. What key strategies should countries perhaps look into in order for them to reduce some of the health risk factors and encourage healthy choices? Absolutely. Leadership at the highest level, taking control of preventing control of non-communicable diseases and uh, ensuring that there is allocation of resources to fight non-communicable diseases. That is the only way we can turn the tide. We have in the World Health Organization what we call the SPIs. These are very cost-effective interventions for policymakers and program managers to address non-communicable diseases. So we encourage implementation of these best buys. Any advertising of tobacco, plain packaging and or head warnings on tobacco, prohibition of smoking in workplaces, public places and uh, public transport and public education campaigns on alcohol and other best buy. Yes, we advocate for increased taxation on alcohol products and bans or restrictions on advertisement of alcohol, restrictions on the availability of alcohol by reducing the hours of sale. We also have best buys on diet and physical activity. Increasingly, we are seeing we are less active in our region, reducing salt content, ensuring that there is awareness of the salt options that are available in public so that people can be informed about uh, how to reduce salt, but also that people understand the dangers of excess salt. On physical activity, the environment must be supportive for people to be able to exercise, to use, sometimes instead of using the vehicles, uh, walking, and uh, you know, even the workplace should be conducive to physical activity. And how is the WHO supporting member states to accelerate and improve key interventions for addressing NCDs? WHO is providing technical support to member states. We are advocating working with the leaders in the region, we are advocating for more resources to be allocated for the prevention and control of non-communicable diseases. We are supporting member states building capacity and showing them how to implement these best buys. And we also support member states to develop action plans, multi-sectoral plans, so that they achieve the internationally agreed targets for reducing death from non-communicable diseases. That's Dr. Stephen Shong, Director of Non-Communicable Diseases at the World Health Organization's Africa region. And he was on the line from Brazzaville in the Republic of Congo speaking to Elizabeth Lidicha. As per tradition, the Zimbabwean government is expected to purchase new luxurious vehicles for the entire cabinet and legislators, and this would require more than 50 million U.S. dollars. After elections every five years, government sets aside funds for new furniture and cars, but this year, two months after harmonized elections, Zimbabwe is seized with a cholera outbreak, the plague requires 64 million U.S. dollars to cure and eradicate, and already 29 million 
US dollars has been raised. However, government has suspended all luxuries and has availed 15 million towards the treatment of cholera. This comes a few days following complaints by ordinary citizens against the introduction of crowdfunding meant to raise cholera funds. Zimbabweans were bitter. Finance Minister Dr. Mtulingwe was begging funds from ordinary Zimbabweans at a time when ministers, legislators were purchasing new cars using taxpayers' money. Dr. Ngwe revealed on Wednesday that all luxuries had been suspended. Well, that's exactly what we've already done. This uh, 15 uh, odd million that the government has uh, pledged, paid, in fact, is exactly that we've had to suspend certain things to make sure that we deal with this uh, pandemic immediately. That's exactly <coughs> what, what we've done. According to Dr. Mtuli, Zimbabwe still requires at least 35 million US dollars to keep the spread of cholera and is hopeful the crowdfunding would yield results soon. There's still a gap, but it's not an immediate gap. It's a long-term gap in the sense that we need further investment in the sector. And for that, again, there will be further uh, outlay of government resources plus uh, resources from partners. We're already talking to them about you know, uh, contributing to that uh, 35-odd million uh, for, for long-term investment. The finance minister took time to explain what crowdfunding was all about and why it has just been introduced in Zimbabwe. This comes amid fears the funds sourced through crowdfunding would be diverted elsewhere considering the nation is broke. You see, crowdfunding is not new. I, I, I just brought it to Zimbabwe, which is, you remember after September 11, this was done. Also, for um, as a minister, I'm not supposed to mention another government, but I have to because out there, uh, uh, politicians, especially in the U.S., President Obama, have used crowdfunding to raise little money, as, as little as a dollar or so, to finance whatever they are, they are doing. This is normal in developed countries, and Zimbabweans are, are tech savvy. Our all on mobile banking, it is easy to do. What you want to do is give a window for anyone who feels that they wish to give. It's not even compulsory, but they wish to give to do so. It's just a mechanism. And then uh, you match what the corporates are doing, match what the governments are, are doing. I think that you'll find that going forward, this will be used as a mechanism just for that. Allow the public to contribute, allow the diaspora to contribute. It's voluntary, and I think it's a very good idea. Meanwhile, questions regarding security of all donor funds have been raised following claims some government officials were profiteering and inflating prices of certain goods meant for cholera treatment. Dr. Nguye explained how funds were being handled. The Minister of Finance and Economic Development has very strong um, uh, financial management systems that adhere to international principles of public finance management. We follow best practice, so there's no issue of the funds not being managed appropriately, properly. We adhere to those principles. Uh, up, you, you can be, uh, uh, be sure of that. I mean, the, 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 there were so many needs, and suddenly we want to save every dollar, apply every dollar where it ought to be applied. You can be sure we're going to do that. But we are adhere to the best practice in terms of financial management in the public sector. On one hand, the health ministry has announced the reduction in the cases of cholera being recorded per day. In Arare, Zimbabwe for Channel Africa, this is Simon Muchemwa.
It's 8.28 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. Let's go back in time to today in 1984. A suicide car bomber attacked the U.S. Embassy Annex in North Beirut, killing at least 14 people, including two Americans and 12 Lebanese. That's today in history in 1984. Channel Africa. Kulitra Njoyif Adi Sababa. Silvanus Kalemera, reporting for Channel Africa in Kigali. Africa, rise and shine. I am Hilda Kekeloa in Zambia. This is Simon Muchemwa in Harare, Zimbabwe. Jean-Noël Bamwese, Channel Africa, Kinshasa. From an African perspective, listen to Channel Africa in English, Kiswahili, French, Silozi, Portuguese and Chinyanja. This is Moki Kinzeka. In Yawundi. Informing the world about Africa. In Mohalizuk, Lesotho. And I am Dana Wanyonyi for Channel Africa in Mombasa. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zosa. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Six suspected rhino poachers have appeared in the White River Magistrates Court in South Africa's Mpumalanga province. They include Joseph Nyalungu and Sydney Mabuza, who are accused of being rhino poaching ringleaders. All the suspects were arrested on Tuesday following an investigation which the police had conducted since last year. Mtobi Simkalipi reports. Did you see this? Did you see this? Where does these things come from? A joint operation saw the Hawks and SAS officials raid a house belonging to Joseph Nyalungu, who is suspected of being a rhino poaching kingpin. They confiscated luxury vehicles, motorbikes, trucks, and an undisclosed amount of money. Nyalungu appeared in court together with another suspected poaching kingpin, Sidney Mabuza a former Skukuza police station commander, Phineas Lubisi, and three other police officers. Hawks spokesperson Hangwana Mlaudzi believes that the state has a strong case against the suspects. There's still one that is still outstanding. We were hoping that we will be able to arrest her very soon. Uh, we are also, of course, working with SARS. Uh, it has come to light that this, some of these uh, suspects, they are owing tax. And uh, as such, we have already confiscated a lot of stuff. The suspected poaching kingpins Nyalungu and Mabuza were arrested while they are out on bail in other rhino poaching related cases. Their case was postponed to next week, Thursday, for a formal bail application. I'm Tobisim Kalipi, White River Magistrate Court. Our headlines up next with Anne Musa. A very good morning to you. I'm Anne Musan. The headlines, election officials in the Democratic Republic of Congo release an official list of candidates for December's presidential election. Ethiopia's Prime Minister Abiy Ahmed urges Ethiopians to unite and work together to defeat those who want to undermine national and Uromo unity. And South African businessman Cassie Naye, who posted a video of himself insulting President Cyril Ramaphosa with the derogatory K-word, has been arrested. Those are the stories making headlines.
Thank you, Anne. It's 8.32 Central African time and you're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. A government departments and municipalities in South Africa need to ensure that the minimum safety standards are observed in all their buildings as the first line of defense against disaster. This was the call by Dr. Zuelim Kize, the country's Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs. Minister Mkize opened the two-day 2018 conference of the Disaster Management Institute of Southern Africa, underway in Benoni, east of Johannesburg. The meeting comes just two weeks after the death of three firefighters who battled a blaze in a building belonging to the Gauteng Provincial Government. For more on this issue, we are now joined on the line by Minister Zuelim Kize. Minister, thank you so much for joining us and good morning. Good morning to you and all the viewers. Now, Minister, firstly, briefly explain the purpose of this meeting on disaster management, which is deemed the biggest of its kind on the continent. This um, conference is a conference of what is called the Disaster Management Institute of Southern Africa. This is a, an institute that brings together all the disaster management and rescue uh, practitioners throughout the whole uh, of Southern Africa. And they are here in a conference to collaborate and looking at how to build resilience on our institutions going into the future. This basically means that we should create an ability to uh, have systems that will withstand problems, uh, analyze risks, and then mitigate them ahead disasters and before warned using scientific data of pending disasters and prepare for responses ahead of the disaster uh, happening. And so it's a, a conference that's bringing together people who have had their own experiences in disaster management, be it fire, drought, floods, uh, uh, you know, a snowfall, or, or, or um, diseases uh, such as cholera and other problems, or, you know, uh, um, what you call the pollution of waters and all of this. So they've come together to look at what needs to be done for collaboration, for coordination, for aligning, all the structures in governments, in provinces, uh, in countries, so that there's a, a cross-collaboration across different countries and across different spheres of government. Now, the meeting is very timely, given the disaster we recently witnessed in Johannesburg, where lives were lost in a government building. Let's reflect on this event and how it could have pre- been prevented. Well, uh, We seem to have lost connection there to the Minister, Dr. Zuelim Kize. He is the Minister of uh, Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs in South Africa. And he was just giving us an update with regards to uh, the... Minister Mkize, are you there? Yes, I'm there. Okay, great. Okay, the Minister is back with us. And we were just chatting about, you were just about to give a, um, a reflection on the event that took place where lives were lost in a government building and how this ca- could have been prevented. Yes, we first start by reiterating our condolences to the families and the friends and colleagues of who perished. And we want Okay. 
Minister, I, unfortunately, I have to cut you off there because the la- the connection is very bad. We'll try and get our producer, Pumuta, to get you back on a line and uh, see if we can get a clearer um, connection. That's Minister Dr. Zuelim Kize of uh, Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs in South Africa. And the minister opened a two-day 2018 conference of the Disaster Management Institute of Southern Africa, which is underway in Benoni, Easter of Johannesburg in the Gauteng province. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zorza. Africa, Amuka na Unai. Swiss chocolate wouldn't be Swiss chocolate without African cocoa. <laughs> you know, it's funny when you think about it that way because you realize just how important Africa is to the global economy. And as long as we are deemed to be inferior by the community out there, nothing's ever going to change. I believe it was one of the uh, ancient Greek philosophers who said that when we teach, we'll learn twice. Hello, Africa. Welcome to 1000 African Voices on Channel Africa. 1000 African Voices. You're listening to Africa Rise and Shine. We're coming to you live from Johannesburg in South Africa. We have managed to get Dr. Zuelim Kize back on the line, and he's the Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs in South Africa. He opened an, a two-day conference uh, of Disaster Management Institute of Southern Africa, which is underway in Benoni, east of Johannesburg in the Gauteng province. Minister, you were reflecting on the uh, unfortunate events that took place uh, a few weeks ago and how it could have been prevented? Well, the, the incident was very unfortunate and the, it is one of those that we must draw lessons from because uh, a lot of uh, the factors that would have caused it are things that could have been analyzed as risk early enough and then prevented. And I think that uh, we, we have made a call for all government departments and municipalities to regularly inspect buildings and ensure that they comply with the minimum safety standards. Because it's important that uh, we must uh, identify risk area, correct them, and then make sure that we avoid disasters from from hitting. Now, we do want to reiterate our condolences to the families and colleagues of those affected. But uh, we believe that uh, uh, department, uh, the departments uh, involved, which is the Department of Human Settlement and the uh, municipality of Johannesburg, will inspect and will support them as we as they investigate to get to the bottom of what caused the problem. Now, Dr. Mkise, what other issues has your department identified as a key concern for the country to avoid disasters? Mainly, we we need to ensure that there's uh, regular inspections of buildings by municipalities and that uh, they must uh, indicate early when there's non-compliance with the basic minimum uh, standards of safety so that we can get those corrected. I think it's much easier to do that. We've also gone on to uh, look at the uh, training of the uh, firefighters and some of the disaster uh, practitioners in the different municipalities. We also uh, want to ensure that there's proper coordination so that it should, should anything arise, the protocols for quick response and, uh, you know, a, a protocol for collaboration across municipalities and also ensuring that the structures are appropriate 
for early response uh, to the disasters. On the other hand, we know that there are financial and resource constraints. So when there are disasters, we then uh, urge the municipalities as well as the provincial governments to declare disasters when necessary. And if they do that, then uh, there's a mechanism to access contingency reserve funds which are meant to rescue or assist uh, uh, those areas that are affected by disasters at each time the disasters hit. Now, Minister, what message do you have for communities given the disaster that we disasters that we also witness, such as the death of uh, I think it's uh, four children in a house that caught fire in Alexandra over the weekend? That one is very sad. It's very very mm. painful because you have a problem of a lack of responsibility by parents who should exercise the first line of care for all those children, and I think that the community leaders. Uh, at all levels, be they uh, community, church, uh, traditional, and other leaders, need to go out and send a strong message to parents to always look after the children. It is not correct to leave children on their own in a house, uh, and of course, to leave them at night. You know, we know that the, the, there are lots of risks that are associated with that. Now, I think that what's important is to always make sure that uh, there is someone around when children are uh, in the house because children don't know. Some of the times they'll be playing and something goes wrong, or if there's a disaster, then there's not. They don't have the capacity to rescue themselves and if the parents have left them on their own i think it's a a real problem of negligence and i think we need to then teach our communities that they are the first line of preventing disasters and uh, ensuring the safety of our children dr mkiza thank you so much for joining us we'll leave it there for now Thank you very much. That's Dr. Zel Mkize, Minister of Cooperative Governance and Traditional Affairs here in South Africa, joining us on the line. This is Channel Africa, South Africa's official international public radio station on shortwave, internet and satellite. From an African perspective... Guess what? You can now listen to Channel Africa using Silozi, Chinyanja, Kiswahili, Portuguese, French and English, giving you an African perspective. Hi, my name is Tandalun Yenzovo and you are listening to Channel Africa. We love Channel Africa from an African perspective. Channel Africa, bringing you the African perspective. Geologists and paleontologists from Wits University in South Africa and the United Kingdom's Birmingham and Oxford Universities have confirmed a massive discovery of different species of dinosaur fossils in Kameha village outside the small South African town of Sturtsbreit in the Eastern Cape province. This has attracted international scholars and researchers who want to experience what they termed the dinosaur bone bed. A team of experts has spent more than a week tracing dinosaur fossils. Many villagers and academics believe this discovery will put the Eastern Cape and South Africa on the world map. Our reporter Ngulule Gunyembezi visited the site and found this report. 
100 million years ago when this animal lived, uh, this rock was mud and the animal lay down on the mud and then it was buried by more mud. Uh, it didn't lie out for very long which is why most of the bones are articulated together. And then later on more mud would come and the dinosaur was buried deep underground and that's when the bones and the mud started to turn into rock. And the result is that we have a fossil dinosaur skeleton entombed in the hard rock. That was Oxford University professor Roger Benson detailing the discovery of extinct dinosaurs in Kamech village in Stacksbury. Meanwhile, John Archenea, a paleontologist from Red University, says the discovery of dinosaur fossils in one place is the first of its kind in the world. In a bone bed means uh, essentially a dinosaur graveyard, a place where lots and lots of animals um, died together um, and were preserved. And, and so these are very, very uncommon in South Africa. So that's what I would call it, a dinosaur graveyard. And I think that as the years go by, we'll find more and more that South Africa is a hub for paleontology across the world, a place where people know there's great dinosaurs being discovered there. There's great extinct forms of life being discovered there. So it's something really to be proud about uh, as a South African. A paleontologist master's student from Vets University, Kwebisam Tekeza, says the discovery of dinosaur fossils in this part of the world is interesting for scholars and geologists. Uh, this discovery means a lot to anyone who's interested in dinosaurs because it's very rare. And in fact, most of us it's our first time finding a specimen this articulated. So usually you'll find one piece of a leg bone or a hand bone, but here you have most of the skeleton, so, so it's very important. Emma Dune, a PhD student from the University of Birmingham in England, has described the discovery of the dinosaur bone bed as a miracle of nature. Oh, well, first of all, it's a great experience, and second of all, it's an amazing site, and you don't get anywhere like this all over the world, so this is a wonderful place to be for me, personally, but also to get to work with such an amazing team, and Jonah's team is wonderful, they're international, and we get such great experience from them. That report by Ngululego Nyembezi. Our economics update up next with Tabisolohuku. Good morning. Kenya's finance minister, Henry Rottich, has cut the government spending budget by 546.9 million US dollars, or 1.8% for the fiscal year from July this year. The government is facing a tough balancing act after public outcry over a new 16% value-added tax VAT on all petroleum products, which forced President Uhuru Kenyatta to suggest to Parliament to keep the VAT and cut it by half. In a document detailing the new spending estimates, Rotich says that the budget had to be adjusted because of the amendments to tax measures brought by lawmakers when they first debated it and passed it last month. Kosatu's Labour Minister, Mildred Oliphant, has warned unions to get their houses in order and comply with the Labour Relations Act. Addressing Trade Union Kosatu Congress in Johannesburg last night, Olifant raised concerns about a rise in the number of registered trade unions that are non-compliant with the provisions of the Act that protects the basic rights of workers at the workplace. Olifant says the department will not protect such trade unions. It pains me to notice that increase in the number of trade unions that are either behind in terms of their compliance with the Labour Relations Act or completely non-compliant. 
The office of the registrar was in the recent past deemed to be independent by the Labour Court. This therefore means that those who approach the Minister for Rescue will not get any relief as that will be seen as interference with the independence of the registrar. Players in the Lesotho tourism industry have called on all sectors of the economy to prioritize tourism. The stakeholders say, given its exceptional natural beauty of rugged and lofty mountains, Lesotho should be harnessing its potential to attract larger sums of tourist arrivals to boost economic activity. Tour operators say Basotho are sleeping on tourism revenue as they are yet to fully embrace it in its different facets. They add that the natural scenic beauty and rich cultural heritage that the country has are some of the appealing factors to tourists. Diamond Bank has announced the launch of SME Zone, a digital platform-based business community for small and medium-scale enterprises in Nigeria. The platform affords SMEs the opportunity to easily access relevant network and be mentored by other entrepreneurs, attend seminars, receive newsletters and participate in competitions that ultimately help position their business for greater success. Diamond Bank says that the essence of developing this digital business platform is to give esteemed SME customers an advantage in the competitive business world that is accessible anywhere and anytime. Nestle says it's exploring strategic options for its skin health business, saying it believes that the unit might be better off outside of the Swiss food maker. Following a strategic review earlier this year, Nestle's board decided to increase the company's focus on food, drinks and nutritional health products. The Swiss company says that the board has come to the conclusion that Future growth opportunities of Nestle Skin Health lie increasingly outside the group's strategic scope. The US dollar trades at 1061 Botswana Pula. It's at 11.4 Zambian Guacha. In BRICS currencies, the US dollar is trading at 414 Brazilian Roll. At 66.97 Russian Ruble and at 72.25 Indian Rupee. 6.85 Chinese Yuan, 14.71 to the South African Rand. It's also trading at 76 pence to the British pound, 85 cents to the euro. Gold is trading at $1,205, platinum $822 pounds. The price of brand crude oil is at $79.68 a barrel. From an African perspective, my name is Tabiso Lohoku. First up in a sports update this hour, I'm figuring what the beginning with football news beaten once, twice shy. Kosafa Cup guest nation Cameroon will be seeking revenge in the semi-final tie against Zambia, who themselves are looking to make their first ever final 
at the ongoing regional tournament. Cameroon have been banned once but by the Zambia's South Shipolopolo force and will be looking to make amends in a good test of their character at this tournament, according to their head coach, Bernadette Anong. I think we'll approach this game with more, more tact because we met a Zambia that was stronger athletically. And I think we'll approach this game in another manner. And uh, what I believe is that the game will be different for what we saw, although I know most of the parameters will come back again. But I think uh, we'll not approach it as we did the first time. With 14 goals, Cameroon have scored the most number of goals in this tournament so far. This game kicks off at 1300 hours Central African time. And three wins with, uh, in three games has handed the Shipolopolo the title favourites tag. But that kind of arrogance will not be entertained in the Zambian camp at all. Instead, it is an attitude of hunger for more success from coach Beauty Muamba's side. We expect a positive result, of course. Well, we know that it will not be an easy game. It's a 50-50 affair. But uh, we hope that uh, our girls will be able to, to put in their, their best so that we can carry the day. Juventus kicked off the Champions League campaign with a 2-0 victory at Valencia in a match overshadowed by a controversial red card for Cristiano Ronaldo, while tournament favourites Manchester City were stunned at home by Lyon last night. Ronaldo's Champions League debut for Juventus lasted less than half an hour as the Portuguese star was red-carded after a collusion with Valencia defender Jason Murillo. After tangling with Ronaldo, Colombian Murillo tumbled to the ground, holding the face, and referee Felix Bridge consulted with the assistant official beside the goal pole before giving the competition's all-time record goalscorer his matching orders. And the second ICC Women's Championship, that's the cricket one-day international match between West Indies and South Africa, was rained out at Kensington Oval last night. The visitors are 1-0 up in the three-match series. Persistent torrential rain caused a delay to the start of the play earlier in the day, seeing the match reduced to 43 overs aside. It was further reduced to 38 overs after another hour was lost 10 overs into the South African innings after they were put into the bed first. Saturday's clash will be the vital side that win both sides as the Windies attempt to level the series and the Proteas search for that elusive ODI series win in the Caribbean. And finally, North and South Korea have agreed to pursue a joint bid to host the Summer Olympics in 2032. The bid was agreed by South Korea's President Moon Jae-in and North Korean leader Kim Jong-un at a meeting in Pyongyang. The two nations have filled the joint teams at major events and won a first goal together at August Asian Games. India, Australia, China and Indonesia have also expressed interest in hosting the 2032 Games. South Korea staged the Winter Olympics this year and the capital Seoul hosted the 1988 Summer Games. North Korea's May Day Stadium is the largest in the world with a reported capacity of 150,000 spectators. That's a spot news this hour. Africa, rise and shine. Africa, Zola. Africa, Amuka, Na Unai. 
Recapping our top stories, in Africa rise and shine at this hour. South Sudan warring parties urge to silence their guns and UN finalizes preparations for Nelson Mandela Peace Summit. That wraps up Africa Rise and Shine today. For myself, Lulu Gabu, producers Pumuto Ramagaza and Jane Rabutata, technical producer Sikendovu and the rest of the team, thank you for joining us. For comments about our show, send us an email at info at channelafrica.org. Tweet us at Rise Shine Africa or WhatsApp on 277-6300327. Taking us to the top of the hour for the news on the frequency 7230 kHz on the 41-meter band to Southern Africa is Kanda Bongoman with a song titled Amor Elegance. <laughs>